we will come to our text a bit later in the sermon. One could make the case that anxiety seems to be a part of the American mindset. And not just in the present. This seems to be part of who we are as a people. In 1881, in a controversial book, an American, uh, it was entitled American Nervousness, Its Causes and Consequences, a neurologist, George M. Beard, proclaimed that Americans in the 19th century led all civilized nations in their susceptibility to nervous, anxious, and depressive disorders. Interestingly enough, Beard attributed it to five developments in modern civilization. Steam power, the periodical press, the telegraph, the sciences, and the mental activity of women. Not quite sure what that was about. In 1947, after we had won World War II, W.H. Auden published his last longest and most ambitious book-length poem entitled The Age of Anxiety. It won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, It dealt with Americans and their thinking after World War II. Despite having won the war, there was great anxiety. By the way, it inspired a symphony by Leonard Bernstein, Symphony Number no. 2 for piano and orchestra, and later a ballet by Jerome Robbins. In 1963, in Scientific American, there was an article entitled The Age of Anxiety, 1963. The author wrote, Ours is said to be the age of anxiety, but what exactly is anxiety and how can it be measured? Just this year, the year 2013, the New York Times has an online series dedicated to anxiety. You may submit uh, articles to anxiety at nytimes.com. With regular postings on such cheering topics as the dire residential options for the ed- elderly, entitled "You Are Going to Die," January 20th, 19 or 2013 as well as regular apocalyptic updates on poverty, guns, violence, terrorism, antibiotic-resistant superbugs, climate change, and the inexorable decline of all the professions, occupations, and institutions we thought were eternal. The World Health Organization has jumped in and has said that despite its wealth, the United States is the most anxious nation on the planet. Now, Freud made a distinction between fear and anxiety. I won't debate the point. Debate the point. I think they, fact, in fact, are closely related. But I would have you consider, as we begin, what we read in the New Testament about being anxious, particularly in light of the most repeated command, do not be afraid. In Philippians 4.6, Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. In 1 Corinthians 7.32, uh, This is in the English Standard Version. I want you to be free from anxieties. And then last week, what we read from Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? We've been looking at the matter of fear, what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our culture, a culture of fear. The past two Sundays, we've considered at least three matters with regard to fear, community, providence, and vulnerability. And if you allow me, I want to review them briefly. First of all, with regard to community, we saw that for all our talking in the United States about our love of community, 
we in fact tend to prize individualism and individual achievement more than anything else. So how could we not be anxious and nervous when we lack a connection to the people around us because we want to be individuals, but we also lack connections to those who came before us? If we are to recover a sense of courageous living, we need to recover the kind of community capable of supporting it. Because I don't think that courage is something we are supposed to have alone. It is something, as the people of God, we are to have together. As a community, as a church, we can often bear risks together that we might be reluctant or fearful to bear alone. Courage is the capacity to do what is right and and good in the face of fear. But as we we asked the question several weeks ago, how do we know that our actions are courageous and, and not just foolish and reckless? This is where the church comes in, where the community comes in. One of the things that the Christian community can do for us is provide a place where we can weigh judgments together about courageous action, where we can say, no, I don't think you should do that, or yes, you should, in fact, go ahead with that course of action. The church should be a place of discernment so that we don't need to rely on our own judgments alone. I mean, I think we become fearful because we don't know, am I making the right decision? It is helpful if we have those around us who can encourage us and who can, in fact, correct us when it is necessary. If we are to be courageous, our fears must be rightly formed. Um, We should have fear. Fear is not wrong. But we should not have so little fear that we become reckless. We should not have so much fear that we become paralyzed. The church is to be a place of shared risks and of shared resources. Then with the matter of providence. I discussed how that our view of providence today is radically different from what came before us. And we'll we'll visit this later in the sermon today. Rather than retracing all that, I would remind you, that we are to think of providence in terms of story and narrative. Rather than trying to explain every little event that happens in a life, and let me back up when I say every little event, it may seem little to me, but in fact it may be something to you. I'm reminded, my wife reminds me, that you know when someone has a birthday, like when they turn 50, and I say, oh, it's the big one, and my wife says, they're all big. Um, In the same way, every event in our life may seem insignificant to others, but to you it may not. And oftentimes I'm called on as a pastor to say, why did this event happen? Why did this thing happen? Well, I think that is not the right way to think of God's providence. We should rather think of it as a story, as a narrative. And we are part of the narrative and part of the story. We are to see and to affirm that our lives will be a part of God's story. So that at this moment, I may not be clear about why something happened. I may be down the road. Or I may die not knowing why something happened. But I know that I'm a part of God's story. We must, by God's grace, understand what God's providence entails. As we journey through life to the end of it, we need to remember that God promises to provide and to redeem. That is... He promises to give us what we need to go on and to reclaim all that is lost along the way. But we talked about this again last week. What does it mean when we speak of God's providence? Does it mean that it will protect us from pain, from harm, from danger? If this is the way we think, then we will be devastated when we are confronted by any of these. 
if we think of providence as a guaranteed protection plan, we will mistake what is going on in our life and in the lives of others. Because we think, well, why did that happen if God, in fact, is providing for them? This is a mistake that Job's friends made as they tried to make sense of what happened to him. They had no theological category. See, they thought in two categories. Good person, blessing. Bad person, judgment or cursing. They didn't have a middle category of good person, innocent person, suffering. And for them, Job had to be in one of the two. And since he was suffering, he must have done something wicked that he was hiding from them. And and therefore, that's why he was suffering. And so Job is on the defensive through much of the book. And in the process, I think, goes too far and tries to justify himself. I didn't do anything wrong. If anyone is at fault here, it is God. Providence is no guarantee of protection. Rather, it assures us of God's provision. He will provide what we need to go on. And redemption, he will restore what has been lost along the way. Then the third thing, and we looked at this last week, is vulnerability. And this is in connection with providence, particularly in Paul's writings. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote, For when I am weak, then I am strong. What we find in Scripture is the paradoxical reversal of strength and weakness. And in doing so, it reveals to us that God's desire to work through human vulnerability, that is his way to work, rather than to simply overcome it. What we find in Scripture is that precisely when we seek to be strong, that is, rely on our own strength, that is but weakness. It is only when we rely on God in our weakness that we are given his strength. This truth is seen in the person of Jesus Christ, and particularly in his passion and his suffering. The cross reveals his power, which is the power of vulnerability, of vulnerable love. If this is the case, one might argue, then what kind of security can we have from a God whose power is vulnerable love? I'm not sure that that's the type of security that I want. Well, remember that the security of God's providence is twofold, provision and redemption. God is drawing history to a conclusion. He is not doing so by control or domination the way we tend to think of things, but by entering into human history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus reveals to us a God who refuses to make the world right by violently enforcing the good. That's the way I would do it. You have to crack a few heads to get things done, then so be it. Things need to be good. God chooses not to work this way. What does this say about a God who does or does not act in the world. We looked at this last week. Consider what we see in the cross of Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by one of the twelve. God did not block the actions of Judas, but he could have. Jesus was arrested by the temple guard. God did not block their actions, though he could have. Peter tried to with the sword. Jesus was put on trial in front of a number of powers. God did not block their actions. Jesus was scourged. And God did not prevent that. Jesus was crucified. God did not prevent that. He was mocked. And he died. 
and God the Father did not block that event. But God did not let death win. The resurrection displays how God works in human history. If you think for a moment, if God had blocked any of the actions I have just mentioned, there would be no resurrection. Without the death of Jesus, there could be no resurrection. So if and when God does not use his power to block evil and suffering, we should understand that God does not necessarily protect us from every harm. Rather, he gives us what we need to continue and he redeems what we have lost along the way. We've seen earlier in this series that fear is not evil. It is not a vice. Excessive fear or disordered fear can tempt us to go the wrong way, and that is wrong. It can can tempt us to cowardice or sloth, rage or violence. But what I want to look at today is that fear, disordered fear, can in fact inhibit virtues. It can stop us from doing the things we should do, such as hospitality, peacemaking, and generosity. Vulnerability causes us oftentimes to want to withdraw or contract within ourselves. It should not, but oftentimes fear causes that to happen. We saw this earlier in the series. Thomas Aquinas wrote that fear arises from the imagination of some threatening evil, which is difficult to repel due to lack of power. I'm not strong enough to fight this off, and therefore I become fearful. Lacking power, or imagining that we lack power, we withdraw into ourselves to conserve whatever strength and energy we have in order to fight off the danger. Aquinas saw this fear as causing a contraction of the heart. Rather than being open-hearted, if you wish, to others, we tend to close up and clam up because we are afraid. By imagining future evil, fear draws us in on ourselves. And so we do not extend ourselves to others. We keep to ourselves. This is a major hindrance to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, following Christ calls us not to contract, but to expand, and not to limit ourselves to a few things, but to open ourselves charitably and generously to many things. Fear tempts us to make safety and self-preservation our highest goals. And when we do, our focus, our moral focus, what we think is right, becomes the protection of our lives and our health. That becomes what our life is about, is protecting ourselves. I want to continue our discussion today of fear by looking at the matter of generosity and the risk that is involved in being generous. I hope that our text will guide us in this matter. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching and he is interrupted by a man who, who asked Jesus to do something. Jesus responds and then he tells a story or a parable. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 13 of chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. 
A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. I must tell you that usually when I think of this passage of scripture, I think of it with regard to vocation or calling. Because the man says to Jesus, teacher, but then he says, I want you to be a judge. He contradicts himself. And in fact, Jesus is clear, this is not my teaching. Who made me a judge? Who made me someone to be an arbitrator in such matters? This is not my job. This is not my calling. My calling is to teach. And then Jesus begins to teach as he tells the people the story. As a teacher, he points out that his listeners should be on their guard against all kinds of greed. Why? Because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he illustrates it with this story. And I think it's a familiar story to most of us, but I think we tend to hear it or read it the wrong way. Jesus' attitude toward this rich man, who is a fool, God calls him a fool, is not one of disdain or judgment, but of compassion. I think we make a serious mistake if we see this as a parable of judgment as if it implied that God was going around killing rich people for building bigger barns. It is a story about someone who wrongly thought he could secure his future by accumulating possessions. It is a story about fear and security and where true security rests. If you look at the verses that follow, it's Luke's version of what we read last week from the Sermon on the Mount. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, 
where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We saw early on in the series that fear promotes a set of what we call shadow virtues. We think there are virtues, but in fact, they are vices. And one of them is accumulation. Because we are afraid, we want to accumulate as much as we can, save up for a rainy day. You know, so when the time comes that we're in trouble, we will have enough to sustain us. And this threatens the true virtue, which is generosity. So we accumulate for ourselves rather than being generous to those who are in need. In a culture of fear, oftentimes it is hard for us to believe that God is enough. That may be hard to hear, but I think it is true. We assume that if we don't make ourselves secure, nobody else will. And in taking this view, we embrace the ethic of safety we begin to think of safety as the thing that we should pursue above all other things. This is what life is about, being safe and secure. Living when and where we do, accumulation of wealth is seen as a means of security. And it is the dominant view, I would say, in our culture. One writer put it this way, Today, the fundamental human condition continues to be anxiety fueled by a market ideology that keeps pounding on us to take more, to not think about our neighbor, to be fearful, short-sighted, grudging. Over and over we're told to be sure we have the resources to continue our affluent lifestyles, especially with approach of our golden years. And in parenthesis he puts, which are golden in more ways than one. You see, like the rich man in our culture, people imagine that accumulating wealth will make us more secure. Let's be clear. There is some truth to that. The practice of saving for emergencies, for college, for retirement, for example, reflect, I think, a proper prudence. There's nothing wrong with saving. It's a good stewardship of what God has given you. And the capacity to save reflects that you are able to delay gratification. You're able to say, I don't need to spend every dime I have just because I have it. I'm willing to say, I will not spend this. I will set it aside and I will save. In our culture, it means resisting the lure of buying as much as you can. So the problem isn't saving as such. The problem is when our fear takes over, when it becomes excessive and disordered so that we can no longer make the proper judgment about when is enough enough. Or we fail to do what is good with what we have. Uh, Scott Bader wrote in his book, when we are so intent to avoid harm to ourselves that we neglect to do good to others, then we have lost the battle with fear. So we sin not simply by accumulating savings, but by letting fear determine how much we need, by letting fear tighten our grip on wealth so that we neglect the call of Jesus to be generous. In a culture of fear, as followers of Jesus, if we are going to learn how to hold our wealth loosely and to share our goods generously, 
we are going to have to be able to overcome excessive fear. To do this, we need to develop the virtue of giving generously as a response to God's providence, God's provision. Because we believe in God's provision and God's redemption, he will give us what we need for the journey and he will give us what has been lost. This is what we need to recover in order to overcome excessive fear that we might in fact be generous to those who are in need. Living when and where we do, capitalism is the dominant economic theory. One of the best known writers about capitalism was Adam Smith in his book, The Wealth of the Nations. He believed that there were laws of economy just as there are laws of nature. And that these laws worked out in such a way that if you were busy helping yourself without knowing it, you end up helping other people. He wrote the following. This is perhaps one of the best known passages from his book, Wealth of the Nations. By directing industry in such a manner as it produces or it may produce what may be of greatest value, he intends only his own gain. And he in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Nor is it always for the worse for the society that was not part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. In other words, Smith says, when you are being selfish, when you're thinking about yourself and self-interest, you will end up helping other people, you weren't even aware of it, better than if you really consciously wanted to help other people. This is radically different than what we what we find what it means to be a follower of Jesus. By the way, Smith also wrote the following. When providence divided the earth among a few lordly masters, it neither forgot nor abandoned those who seemed to have been left out in the partition. These two will enjoy their share of all that it produces. In other words, providence said, okay, these people get to be wealthy and these people get to be poor. Providence, by the way, in Adam Smith's mind, a moral philosopher, has replaced God. And rather than a personal God, we have impersonal providence, the invisible hand that is moving the economy. Back to the matter of helping others as a byproduct. Smith suggests that we can serve the common good without having to develop the virtues of charity, self-control, temperance, and justice. In fact, what he suggests is forget being charitable, Go for it, make as money as you can, and in the process, other people will benefit. That if you are guided by self-interest, that will help the common good. One theologian has called this the de-ethicization of the economic. In other words, ethics, economy, no. We'll just have the economy. We're not going to have any ethical considerations whatsoever. So that as followers of Jesus, if we listen to Adam Smith, rather than reflecting on what are the moral issues involved in making and spending and producing and consuming, we don't think about that anymore if we follow Adam Smith. Rather, we simply go for it, make as much money as we can, accumulate as much as we can, and excess will spill over and other people will get what they need. 
If we listen to Adam Smith, we don't have to think about moral issues or ethical issues. We simply have to think about how can I make the most money the most quickly. Providence then came to be an excuse for us not to be generous, not to engage in the practice of generosity and not to follow the practice of Jesus as he went to the cross of self-sacrifice and not putting the needs of others before ourselves. I've mentioned this before and I understand why they do it, but I, I find myself being disturbed when I get on an airplane and they do the thing you know, about the life vest and the oxygen dropping down. And they always tell you, put your oxygen mask on first before you try to help someone else. I understand the thinking behind that, because if you lose consciousness, you're not going to be able to help anyone. But it just sort of rubs me that that's so much of, this, like Adam Smith, it's like help yourself and then you'll be able to help others. And the idea of giving of yourself, of self-sacrifice, seems to have been lost. See, rather than strengthening a courageous and patient life of Christian discipleship, taking up your cross and following Jesus, Smith speaks of providence in such a way that traditional morality is archaic and unnecessary. But by bringing providence into the discussion, Smith basically says you can't use providence to critique capitalism, which I think is wrong. In scripture, as well as in the history of the church, the doctrine of providence did not mean a safety net that would free us from moral obligations to one another. Rather, it was meant to assure us that God was there, that he would care for us so that we could care for others generously. In following Jesus means embracing an ethic of risk. It tells us to imitate God's radical generosity, trusting that the rest will be provided to us. Consider what we find in the book of Genesis. The book opens with abundance and it closes with a famine. In this book, in the book of Genesis, we find the tension between trusting God's providential care and exploiting others for personal gain. Genesis opens with the creation, God's abundant gift of giving. But it ends with a famine that drives Jacob and his sons to Egypt to avoid starvation. And yet, I think we miss the main point of the story when we read this. It's usually something we tell the kids in Sunday school about Joseph going down and then his brothers and the whole story. Pharaoh had two dreams. And Joseph interpreted the dreams, which said that there would be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. In sending the dream, God makes it possible for Pharaoh because Joseph interprets a dream, to provide for his people when the lean years come. So that, in fact, one could argue you have seven years of plenty and you have seven years of famine, but you do not have seven years of scarcity because God has told them you're going to have excess and you're not going to have enough here. You need to bring this over here, save, so that you have some for the lean years. They were not supposed to be years of scarcity, simply years of famine, 
but provided for because had God had sent the dreams to Pharaoh. But this is not what Pharaoh does. And this is not what Joseph does. Do you know the story? What happens when the seven lean years come, the seven famine years come? The Egyptians run out of food and they come to Pharaoh and they say, Pharaoh, we're out of food. And he says, that's not my problem. See Joseph. And what does Joseph do? Does he generously give them food? No. He sells them the food. The seven bountiful years, they had collected 20% and put it in storage. Now that the famine is here, they do not give it to the people, they sell it to the people. And in Genesis 47, verse 14, Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan. All the money in payment for the grain they were buying. Then they ran out of money and they came to Joseph and he said, well, you have animals, don't you? You have livestock, don't you? Give them to us in exchange for grain. And that's what they did. Then they ran out of animals and they were out of food. And they went to Joseph and he said, you have land, don't you? Sell your land to Pharaoh and we will give you the grain. And we read in verse 20, Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. Then they ran out of land. And what did they do? They sold themselves. Pharaoh enslaved his own people. God had sent him two dreams and a wise man to interpret the dreams to say you're going to have good years and you're going to have bad years but you can mitigate this by saving and then being generous during this time. But rather than being generous, it was a time of exploitation. What was supposed to be a plan of sharing and of generosity became one of exploitation. The truth is, as I said, there really was not a scarcity. There was plenty of grain. They had saved up. God had warned them. And so they had followed his warning. They had saved up. There was plenty of grain. But it was not shared generously. The scarcity, the imagined scarcity, came from Pharaoh's determination not to share. This came from fear. As one writer put it, because Pharaoh is afraid there aren't enough good things to go around, he must try to have them all. Because he is fearful, he is ruthless. And he takes all their money, all their animals, all their land, and themselves. He takes his people as slaves. Is it any wonder that the man after him, his successor, then turns around and enslaves the Israelites? And why did he enslave the Israelites? Because he was afraid. There were so many of them. If an invasion force came in, the Israelites might join the invaders and overrun Egypt. Out of fear, he enslaved people. And out of fear, Pharaoh exploited his own people. Genesis opens with a generous God who creates this wonderful creation. And it closes with a ruthless and fearful man and his number two man, Joseph, who in a time that they were prepared for, use it rather than to be generous, they use it to exploit and take whatever they can. 
I would argue that the contrast between God's generosity and our fear of scarcity continues to be an issue for us today. If, like Pharaoh and Joseph, we are incapable of trusting God's abundance, not sure it's going to be enough, then we will take advantage of the threat of security, or scarcity, I'm sorry, the threat of scarcity, to secure our own futures at the expense of others. However, if on the other hand, we believe that God can and will provide abundantly, then we will be able to live according to the ethic whereby we are not driven, controlled, anxious, frantic, or greedy, precisely because we are sufficiently at peace and at home to care for the needs of others as we have been cared for. Trusting providence means trusting God's provision. And trusting God's provision allows us to embody generosity. After the exodus, go back to Joseph. After he dies, there's a new Pharaoh. He enslaves the Israelites. And for four centuries, they are slaves. Now God liberates them in the exodus. But their thinking is Egyptian. Their economic thinking is all wrong. And so God must bring them into the wilderness, into a place of scarcity, where they run out of food. In fact, some of them want to go back to Egypt because at least they have food back there. And God begins to provide for them with manna. He answers scarcity with abundance. But this abundance had with it the practice of restraint. Each person was to gather as much as he or she needed to leave the rest for others. You're not the only person on the planet. There are other people who have needs as well. In this way, God promised that there would be enough for all the people of Israel, which if you think about it, it's quite astounding. There are at least 600,000 men who left Egypt in the Exodus. That's a lot of people to feed. But God provided for them. But if you read the book of Exodus, we find out that some of them are still thinking in the old way, in the Egyptian way. And so they, they don't get enough for one day, they get extra. Because they learned in Egypt, if you want to survive, you've got to accumulate as much as you can. And God said, no, I will provide every day for you what you need. The accumulating didn't work out the way that they intended um, it spoiled overnight and it was useless. See, in God's economy, hoarding is not to be rewarded. What we have been given, we are to share generously with those around us. I find it striking that as Paul writes in the second letter to the Corinthians about helping those in need, he makes reference to the story about manna. He sees that as an example of God's provision and of sharing. And then in chapter 9, the next chapter, he's, he's drawing certain conclusions and he writes, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will, be, uh, you will abound in every good work. In other words, God provides for us. God will provide for us. Let us not be fearful. Let us be generous with those who are in need. John Calvin put it this way. 
All the gifts we possess have been bestowed by God and entrusted to us on condition that they be distributed for our neighbor's benefit. I think it might help if, rather than thinking in terms of private property, we think in terms of personal property. Personal in that it's under my personal control. God has given it to me to make sure that I take care of this. It is not private in that it is mine and mine alone. After all, we are told in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So it belongs to God. But God has said to me, Damon, this is what I have given you to be a steward over. It doesn't belong to me privately. It is something I am to share with those around me. It is personal in that I am a steward of what belongs to God. It is not private that I am not to keep it for myself. Yesterday I was reading through the paper and I read something out loud to Guy. I don't know if any of you saw this, but uh, at an auction house in Paris uh, yesterday, they auctioned off 70 Hopi uh, sacred masks. And the Hopi uh, tribe here is quite upset about it. Uh, They said these are sacred masks. Uh, They belong to the Hopi people. They were taken away unjustly and we want them returned. What struck me was the response of the head of the auction house. Speaking of these masks, he says, these are in private collections in Europe and are no longer sacred. When objects are in private collections, even in the United States, they are no longer sacred. Wow. I I told Gia, I'm not sure that I want an auctioneer deciding what is sacred and what is not. But suddenly he says, because it is private, it is no longer sacred. Well, as much as that might appall us, I think that may be the way we think about what God has given us. Because it is mine, I don't have to share it. Excuse me? God has given us things that, in fact, we can turn around and share with those who are in need. If we believe that what we have, we have been given by God then we must acknowledge that we are to share generously, even when it means risk. Even when it means we may not, humanly speaking, on the face of it, have enough for ourselves. We are to share with those who are in need. We are not to be controlled by fear. Fear is not to determine the actions that we take. Excessive fear will say, don't give anything away. You've got to save up for a rainy day. You know, when the big one hits, we need to have enough food for ourselves. I don't know about everybody else, but we've got to have enough. It is prudent to prepare. But we are also to share with those who are in need. I must confess to you that as I was preparing the sermon, I was of two minds. The one was that I should go on and do this. The other one is that I should speak about something else. That in many ways I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I obviously prejudice because I'm your pastor, but you are an extremely generous people. And, and I feel that speaking about generosity is, is not necessarily something you need to hear. So the purpose of the sermon is not to tell you, be generous. You already are. It is to say, Don't let fear change that. 
Don't let excessive fear inhibit or stop your generosity. You are a generous people by God's grace. And I'm so thankful for that. Don't let fear change that about you. May we, by God's grace, continue. We have been given so much freely. Let us turn around and generously give to those who are in need. In one of the hymns that we sang today, there was a line, Let all fear of want remove. We should not be afraid of not having enough. God's provision, God's redemption. Let us, by God's grace, share what he has given to us so generously. Let's pray together. Father, because we are sinners, we are fearful. Because we live in a culture of fear, oftentimes it rubs off on us. We don't like being afraid. So we look to things that will make us feel less afraid. Somehow we imagine that if we have enough things, that we'll be okay. And then we're not so afraid. Almost as though our fear level is affected by our bank account. The more money we have, the less fearful we are. And the less money we have, the more fearful we become. May we trust in your provision. And by your grace, may we be generous. I thank you for a generous people in this congregation. My prayer is that fear will not change that in their lives. That in difficult times as well as in easy times, by your grace, we would continue to practice the virtue of generosity. This day we think of Lonnie, who's not able to be with us, but her retirement and your faithfulness in her life over these years, her faithfulness to us. We pray for her and Danny as they travel that you would give them safety, a time of rest, of refreshment. We ask that you bring them back to us safely. And for the food that we're going to share afterwards, we give thanks and ask your blessing on it. Now may your grace go with us as we leave this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.